Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, as much as it can feel... So overwhelming the extent to which technology is sort of eating the world right now. It's also important to remember that there are many different mechanisms by which we can change what sorts of control and power technology and technology companies have. Uh, and it's worth finding those, particularly at the local level, at the city level, which is where a lot of this is happening, uh, but also is a place where it's much easier to uh, get engaged and where policy can come up and act in a much more quick manner. Smart cities have captured the imagination of urban dwellers, of city council members, mayors, governors, all kinds of policymakers. But what are the advantages and disadvantages of smart technologies and smart cities in particular? And how can we begin to think about the possible impacts of smart technology on the very people who live in urban environments. Today on New Books and Technology, we have Ben Green, the author of the new book, The Smart Enough City, putting technology in its place to reclaim our urban future. Welcome back to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. One of the first things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is learn about the author. So tell us about yourself. Who is Ben Green? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am a PhD candidate in applied math at Harvard, and I've always been interested in both technology and particular computer science and data science, but also in cities and city government and urban planning, and have sort of throughout my undergraduate and graduate years really been focused on how the how new technology and how data science can be applied to city governments and did a lot of that work in the city of Boston and working with other cities. And from there, increasingly began to see that many of the issues about how to use technology well and the social impacts of technology in cities were not just about the technology itself, but were about questions of governance and politics and 
the social context around the technology. And so that's been really the focus of my work and the focus of my book, thinking about how do we understand the role and impacts of technology from a broad perspective that looks at many different factors and fully understands what's going on, as opposed to just thinking about these issues solely as technology problems. And so that's really what what drives me and my work. So hold up. You said you were a math PhD. Yeah. So (laughs) many people would think, okay, uh, what the heck does math have to do with Mm -hmm. all the things that you're just talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So increasingly, uh, city governments are looking to data, big data, and algorithms. So different types of mathematical formulas to try to find patterns within data and to make sense and to make predictions based on historical data, to find patterns within data, to understand what's going on within the city. Uh, and that's a, that's a major trend in, within city governments over the last 10 years in particular, although it's certainly been going on for much longer than that. So that was really my entry point into these questions was as someone with a math and computer science background, trying to help city governments make sense of all of that data and to take advantage of statistical inferences to make sense of data. Mm -hmm. So the book is The Smart Enough City. What, first of all, what is a smart anything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's sort of, I like that to start with that, actually, that it's not just about this idea of the smart city, but this idea of the smart anything. Uh, and, you know, I think we're all pretty familiar with the idea of a smartphone, uh, but there's also, you know, there's the smart home, the smart toaster, the smart toothbrush, uh, all of these different sort of uh, implements or places where the word smart is being uh, adopted. And really what, what I take it to mean is just the adoption of some form of digital technology, whether that's internet connectivity, uh, data collection, uh, connection to an app on your smartphone, something like that. So it's sort of this broad term, often a bit of a buzzword, if not always a bit of a buzzword, that says you're taking something that has traditionally been sort of an analog, non-digital item and incorporating some form of digital technology into that item and how its function works. Mm -hmm. Now, this brings me to the second part of your title, which is putting Mm -hmm. technology in its place to reclaim our urban future. What is the place of technology with respect to urbanism? Mm -hmm. So that's really the, the ultimate question that I think we are, as a society and as cities, are facing today. It's really trying to think about what is the role of technology. And what I've been seeing and what I really target in the book is this idea, this sort of over-heightened uh, role for technology, this pedestal that technology has been put on, such that it is seen as <clears throat> the ideal type of solution to every problem as superior to other forms of knowledge, other forms of policymaking as a way to address urban challenges. And 
there are, you know, I see many dangers with that, which we can get into, but that is sort of the goal. The, the core goal of the book is to recenter the relationship between how we think about cities and innovation and progress with respect to technology and moving away from a lens where we think of technology as always the ideal approach for, for working within cities towards one where we understand both the potential, but also the limits and dangers of new technology in these contexts. So one of the, the phrases that you use related to what you were just talking about is the tech goggles um, as a form of tech solutionism that you really get into. Um, where do we see tech goggles currently um, when we think about smart cities and smart city governance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just the, the broad framing of tech goggles that I, that I talk about throughout the book is right. This idea of how does the world look like? What does the world look like through the lens of technology, through uh, perhaps the way that an engineer would see the world? And it's sort of right, very similar to techno solutionism and other, other people have certainly come up with similar ideas and similar phrases. And <clears throat> But it's really this sense of, you know, what does the world look like when you're coming at it from the perspective of everything is a technology problem and I can solve every problem with technology? So there are a lot of different domains where that that comes to play. There are certainly, but I think this general idea in the smart city that we need to build, you know, different companies talk about building cities from the internet up or building digital connectivity at the core of the city. And this idea that that is, if you have digital technology and in the backbone of the city, that that will then be the ideal thriving city. Uh, <clears throat> and this is everywhere from public safety to civic engagement to transportation, where I'll maybe focus on transportation briefly, this idea that, well, if we were just able to have the you know new self-driving cars and new uh, connections between all of the infrastructure on our streets and those self-driving cars. We can optimize traffic and suddenly we'll have these utopian cities where congestion is eliminated. And this, I, so it's this approach of taking what is this complex urban problem, in this case of mobility, one that has not just uh, many different dimensions in terms of the mobility challenges, but also it touches on issues of urban planning and sustainability and equity uh, and education and all of these other aspects and turning it into a technical optimization problem. Mm -hmm. So is there a a disconnect between technologists and what technologists think, uh, we should be doing to have a better city or better urban environment and also politicians and then also actual city residents and what city residents think they need and believe would be the best way to solve many of the uh, longstanding urban problems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a handful of different disconnects. I think definitely one of them is the perspective of the technologists who tend not to have a deep understanding of the broader social context of these problems or the broader policy and political landscape of what actually would make sense as a solution. And I remember when I would was working in Boston City Hall as a data scientist, sometimes talking to my colleagues in the computer science department at Harvard, and they would be talking about their great ideas for what types of technology would be really helpful for the police department or the transportation department. And, you know, I was 
had this was it you know felt like well these are solutions that sound really great when you're talking in the abstract but actually would not work for don't actually solve the particular problems that these departments are facing and don't actually would not actually fit into the types of policy solutions that are feasible within those contexts so there's definitely a disconnect between technologists and the sort of city urban realities in many cases the politicians are are split in some cases politicians and other urban leaders certainly do understand that urban context but in other cases certainly especially the politicians do adopt the sort of techno utopian language uh, as a way of you know in many ways branding the city as one that's progressive and forward thinking uh, a lot of cities have smart city initiatives and will talk a great deal about their their smart city programs as a way of branding the city as one that's working into the 21st century, trying to attract jobs and all of that. So there is a little bit of the, the broader political landscape here that does tend to take these technological solutions uh, as ideal and as valuable. And I think one of the one of the things that I want to help shift is to turn that conversation not just among the technologists but also among city leaders who are begin to see more of the dangers of this technology and more of the really just the complexities of the technology that it's not something that necessarily means your city is going to improve uh, and then the last disconnect I think in many ways the strongest disconnect is between the politicians and the technologists on the one hand, and then the general public on the other, uh, who very often don't end up seeing the benefits of this technology and aren't always clamoring for this type of technology. Uh, and we definitely, I saw this disconnect really firsthand when I was working for the city of Boston. We were trying to help uh, implement a new for a new website and program for open data, for data sets that the city had collected that we were going to release publicly uh, for anyone to use. And there was this idea that doing so would improve civic engagement, improve transparency, uh, and all of that by enabling anyone in the city of Boston to use much of the city's data. And we went out to public libraries across the city and started trying to talk to people. We set up booths in different libraries. And whenever we would ask people about the data, we would ask them, you know, what sorts of data sets are you interested in? What would you like to see? What data questions do you have? They totally did not care. They had very little interest in having that type of conversation. Mm. And they ultimately did not view their problems in terms of technology problems. We, When we talked to them in more general terms, we asked them, how long have you lived in this neighborhood? How do you like the schools? How do you like the parks? What sorts of things are you concerned about? We had very long conversations, but they were not conversations that hinged on technology or problems that ultimately technology could solve. Uh, and so there was this very strong disconnect. And then one, one line that someone said to me still sticks with me, uh, where an older resident who lived in Boston for years said, you know, information is perfectly fine, but I want a way to influence what's happening. Um, and I think that that's really important to remember that the technology is not necessarily inherently empowering to the public or actually addressing the types of day-to-day -day, uh, or even long-term sustained systemic problems that 
people in the public are actually facing. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Hmm. So as, as a, just like a, a foundational questions, haven't cities always used technology or aren't cities always have, haven't they always been a place where technology is and technology is used for some kind of benefit to the populace? Mm-hmm. What makes smart cities yeah. different? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think in there's in many ways it's it's there are many ways in which the smart city is a continuation of other urban trends. Cities definitely have have always been places where different technologies have sort of come in and changed the landscape. You know, I think the car being, you know, sort of the most obvious parallel here where that was a a new technology that came in and completely reshaped cities. And uh, while in many senses, the car did improve uh, people's ability to get around and other things like that, we also saw the dangers of building cities from the perspective of that was overly centered on how do we focus on this new technology of cars and how do we uh, really emphasize automobile travel as the thing we want to sort of optimize for or value in this city. So I think that there are definitely other technologies and other ways of historical examples of thinking about cities through the lens of technology. And there's, there's always been this sort of utopian strain of thinking about the future of cities from that perspective. And I think that that's really useful, both because we can look to some of these historical parallels and see how, even though there were opportunities, focusing too heavily on the technologies without thinking about the risks and the complexities actually led to to a great deal of harm in many cases, thinking about the, you know, the mid, mid to late 20th century push towards highway or, you know, highways through downtowns and how that decimated many communities. And also, I think, can point to the ways in which the smart city is in many ways sort of this branding strategy that what seems to be this new generation of urban possibility is something that has emerged from a great deal of marketing and uh, lobbying from technology companies that are uh, trying to find new spaces where they can sell technology and are sort of creating a marketplace almost out of thin air by convincing cities and city leaders and others that this is sort of the vision that they should be having for themselves. Hmm. 
Now, you've used this word more than once in our conversation so far, and that is mm-hmm. utopianism. So both just mm-hmm. regular utopianism, but then techno-utopianism. What is utopianism and how has it kind of shaped how people view uh, governance, but also urbanism and now technology with respect to urban spaces? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think of the of utopianism as... I guess, you know, having having a vision of what a what a perfect or ideal society could be and or or at least one that is, you know, very substantially improved and many, where many of the problems that we currently face today are are gone. And on the one hand, utopianism is is valuable, right? To achieve any sort of social change requires having a vision of what you're actually trying to work towards. I'm not someone who says you know, all we can do is make small tweaks around where we are today, and that's all we should think about. But I think that, you know, the the danger of utopianism is that it ultimately involves a great deal of abstraction and a great deal of sort of removing the realities of what we are, where we are today. And in that sense, the the choices about what to what to hold and what to get rid of are incredibly consequential and the and utopian visions can always sort of they do shape the direction of where we're headed in the future and where we get to where we're moving and so in that sense you know i think that this raises going back to that last question of the sort of corporate element of all of this is this question of who gets to shape these narratives who has the power to create utopian narratives that then are adopted by city governments and are adopted by foundations and the press as the sort of unifying narrative of where, what trends are happening and where we are going and where we should be going. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, you know, maybe the, the, the danger of this type of utopianism is that when we are existing in this environment where these, you know, multinational, multi-billion dollar tech companies are able to put forward these types of visions and that shapes where this is going that constituency suddenly has an incredible amount of uh, influence over the broader conversation. And the other piece of this being that uh, when we focus too much on the utopian visions and so, or maybe a different way of saying it is that the utopian visions, utopian visions can be incredibly powerful ways of organizing and thinking about a conversation or where we should go. And the danger becomes when we start implementing solutions that are grounded within that utopian vision into the the real world that we have today. And sort of this gap between what makes sense in perhaps some utopian ideal world and what actually will happen when we implement that type of solution in the the very non-ideal world that we have today. Mm -hmm. And there are historical examples of how when you sort of try to implement that type of solution into the real world, all of the things that you've erased suddenly come to the fore because those are still there. And that can lead what seems like a utopian solution, whether it's digital technology or different forms of urban planning, to actually be quite dystopian in practice. Hmm. So you mentioned dystopia. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's been quite a lot of controversy surrounding smart cities, whether it's in Toronto with the, the Quayside, but also, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, Hudson Yards in 
New York. In fact, um, City Lab named 2018, so last year, the year of the smart city skeptic. So what do you mm. think people are waking up to with regard to the drawbacks of a smart city and the public-private partnerships that are happening mm. in these smart zones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you that second part to me is absolutely key, which is the the public private partnerships. And I actually think there's been a a trend and certainly there have been smart city skeptics pretty much for as long as there have been smart cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I there's a great book by Adam Greenfield against the smart city that I think was published in 2013. And that was, you know, very influential to me and others who have worked in this space. So certainly there's been that strain of thought. I think that really the initial organizing around critiques of smart cities starting several years ago was largely about questions of privacy, about uh, the sense of, you know, putting sensors or cameras uh, across the city, whether that's on streetlights or trash cans or any other type of infrastructure, creates an incredible surveillance network throughout the city for both the government and in particular law enforcement and also for private companies. And so there have been huge amounts of concern and pushback about that. And then I would say that starting around 2018 and and really picking up in 2019, the additional concern along with privacy was this question of privatization and people realizing the extent to which uh, these smart city projects were happening through uh, public-private partnerships where city governments were handing over not just data collection capabilities, but also control of assets and incredible amounts of decision-making power over to private companies. Uh, certainly, the and I think that's sort of what connects this question of uh, Toronto, where Sidewalk Labs, which is a Alphabet uh, or Google company, is building out a, na- a new neighborhood, or at least trying to build out a new neighborhood, uh, very much focused on technology to Hudson Yards, which would not be, you know, I wouldn't sort of think of Hudson, something like Hudson Yards. You could think about uh, Amazon HQ2, also in New York. I wouldn't think of those as being under sort of the, the standard smart city umbrella but they absolutely are connected to these other smart city projects from the perspective of uh, large uh, public-private partnerships where investors and companies get to develop neighborhoods or be in control of huge swaths of land and really build those out in a particular way. Um, And I think that that is, in many cases, almost more than the the data or as much as the data collection is, is the story of smart cities and is the battle I think that currently is ongoing uh, to figure out to what extent, uh, whether it's a technology company that wants to build technology like Google or a technology company that wants to build a campus like Amazon or investors that want to build sort of a fancy, uh, whatever we want to call Hudson Yard sort of shopping business center, uh, whether or not that's going to be allowed uh, for them to have that type of control and get those massive uh, public benefits and things like that. So in many ways, that's also a, a huge unifying thread here that isn't about the technology itself. Hmm. So do we need smart cities? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think that, 
you know, as I've, as I've described, there are many harms to the smart city and to the idea, again, sort of to that, to the, the utopian unifying idea of the smart city as a place that there's, uh, you know, if we were to just have more digital technology and more advanced and use it more and use it better, that we could, we would have better cities. And I think that's just fundamentally a misguided approach to think about what urbanism is and what urban challenges are and what would improve cities. But that doesn't mean we have to throw out technology entirely. The sort of the shift that I try to focus on is from the smart city, one where, you know, doing better, being smarter means having more technology to the smart enough city Mm -hmm. where we haven't erased the idea of technology, but suddenly we're thinking about it not as an end in itself, but as a means towards other outcomes and other solutions. Uh, I, I sort of think of when, when it's framed as the smart enough city, suddenly if the goal is to be smart enough, you have to, you have to think about, okay, smart enough for what, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And the, the different case studies I talk about throughout the book are organized around different, different sort of actual aspirations and values that we should have for cities, you know, an, uh, an inclusive city, a livable city, a just city, a democratic city. And then the question becomes, to what extent uh, can technology be a useful tool in achieving certain elements of those values and of those broader goals? Mm-hmm. And in the different cities that I look at in practice, all of the, I would say, best outcomes are the ones where cities had, they already had a long-term planning vision. They had a holistic approach that in many cases that wasn't just focused on technology. It was, you know, they were changing practices. They were hiring new types of people. They were creating new policies and new partnerships. And then the technology provides particular opportunities to enhance some of those programs to provide better information or to make certain aspects of those programs more efficient. But the sort of core of the innovation and the change there is from cities that are approaching from a long-term perspective, aren't just chasing the latest fads of technology and have been doing long-term deep thinking about where do we want to be in 5, 10, 50 years and how do we get there? And then only at that point does the question of how can technology help come in as opposed to starting from we need technology. How can we throw technology at more problems? Mm-hmm. What's next for you? Mm-hmm. So I think that the the you know within this context of smart cities, one of the biggest areas is you know actually now not just shifting the conversation, but trying to get some policy changes and uh, get cities thinking differently about this. So one of the things that I've been pretty involved in throughout since the publication of the book uh, earlier this year uh, has been working with different cities to implement new types of laws and policies, uh, in particular to prevent surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so actually just uh, later this week, there will be a, a, test, a hearing at New York City Council about an act that would require new trans require transparency about any surveillance technology that the New York Police Department is uh, either acquiring or using, uh, and that's sort of part of a broader trend of cities 
that have been pushing forward some of those ordinances, and uh, I'm working on a testimony for that. So building out these types of laws that actually provide some form of transparency uh, and ultimately democratic control over technology uh, is one place where I've been really passionate about. And then I've also been uh, somewhat involved in the the various battles going on in Toronto. Uh, among other things, there is a uh, ongoing lawsuit that I have been a uh, sort of expert witness for, for that, um, have a brief that's, you know, now up online. So um, that's another place we're really trying to push back on some of these public-private partnerships and the broad surveillance capabilities that they are uh, creating uh, and trying to help shift this conversation. And I, I, I see Toronto as sort of a, a ground zero for a lot of this, this uh, sort of this where this battle is playing out and will really shape uh, what types of technologies and what types of public-private partnerships and management structures are ultimately going to be seen as feasible within uh, within cities. And so that project is very much up in the air. It's not entirely clear where it's going to go. And there are a lot of great organizers on the ground in Toronto who are doing work also to point out the, the limits of what this program is providing, and in particular, the ways that uh, Sidewalk Labs has sort of eschewed any sort of real, genuine democratic process for what this city is going to look like. Um, and I think that that's, you know, sort of setting will ultimately set some of the boundaries of, of what smart the next, you know, five years of smart city projects actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Ben. Thanks for coming on the show. And yeah, thank you so much. This has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.